Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital in a week where we're not quite sure whether a global pandemic or Russian interference poses a greater threat to the country. Of course, I'm sure time will tell on that in due course. My name is Scott Challoner, your host for today, and I'm delighted to be joined by another person as we explore a new perspective on leadership. Um, on today's programme, I'll be joined first and foremost by Teresa Jennings, the Chief Executive at Encompass, a health and care charity that helps over 30,000 people each year stay well through the provision of carers, counselling, wellbeing and advocacy services across the north of England. A little later on in the programme, we'll also be hearing from a 1966 FIFA World Cup winner, Sir Jeff Hurst. But for now, Teresa, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Teresa. It's a real, real pleasure having you with us. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we dive in by taking that word leader aside and considering that in a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you. What is the role of a leader in your eyes? So if, if, I, were, if I had to summarise what I, I thought the word leader meant, to me, I probably would say um, that it's about creating the right conditions for success, and that is the role of the leader. Um, so from my perspective, um, that uh, speaks a lot to uh, ensuring that Encompass is a fantastic place to work, as we are a people-supporting people charity. And thinking of your sort of personal leadership model, how would you describe that? Uh, very open, consultative, um, co-design, um, ensure there's a high degree of engagement in whatever we're doing uh, from uh, colleagues. Um, and particularly during the last uh, six months, um, and I think one of the things that charities are, are good at is being very agile and adaptable mm. in what a very challenging operating environment for us all at the moment. Just how significant a challenge has it been adapting to the new reality that has been brought about by the COVID-19 situation? Because it has affected a great many of us, not just in the UK, but of course, all over the world as well. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the role that we play, I mean, we're a, we're a health and social care provider. And, and as you said in the instruction, we support over 30,000 people each year stay well. So um, there have been some particular challenges linked to the work that we do uh, and what we've not been able to do uh, and how we've been able to adapt uh, during lockdown. So as I've already said, we're a people helping people charity. And a lot of the work that we traditionally deliver um, is face-to-face and and with people. So we've had to um, very quickly at the beginning of lockdown um, move the whole charity's operation off-site so that everyone uh, could could continue to work from home. And we've also moved a lot of our provision onto various different platforms, digital platforms, to enable us to still have contact with people, albeit virtually. So the only bit that we haven't been able to do is that real sort of face-to-face uh, work. But, but as restrictions start to get eased, 
we're hoping some of those things will start to um, be, become easier for us. But I have to say, the uh, response from my colleagues has been absolutely fantastic. Their morale and productivity has remained high. Um, and we've had a real focus on ensuring that we've uh, looked after the health and well-being of our, all of our staff during this time. Mm. Because if they're not where they need to be mentally and physically, they're not going to be able to, you know, do their job to their highest ability. So we've had a big focus around that as well, which I think has paid dividends. And I can imagine that that importance um, and emphasis on sort of mental health and well-being has really stood you in good stead because people do ultimately react to different things differently, don't they, let alone a crisis such as COVID-19. So whereas some may be able to continue to work and are sort of quite relaxed under new conditions such as this, be that working from home or working on site under new safety procedures, for others it's a little bit different. There's a little bit more sort of care and reassurance that's required and it's about sort of being adaptable, flexible and also sensitive to those needs as a leader, isn't it, as well? Yeah, and, and, and we've been very mindful of that and we've talked all the way through this about wanting to come out of this stronger, fitter and be able to continue to thrive because we've had a very successful um, 20 years that we've been around um, uh, journey. We've been on a successful journey and we, we're still a bold and ambitious charity that wants to wants to continue to, to grow so we can support even more people. Um, so what we're really keen to do is make sure that we embed the things that have worked well because um, there's been actually quite a few positive spin-offs for us as a result of the ways we've had to work differently that's forced us down a route um, to, to sort of adapt and learn those things quickly. So we will be continuing to do some of those things beyond uh, the pandemic, um, but have been very mindful to give staff options and be flexible, as, as flexible as we can be, bearing in mind that, you know, everyone's got their own personal set of circumstances. We've got quite a few staff that are carers. Uh, we've got quite a few staff that have children and families and haven't been able to have the same level of childcare in place. And I think by doing that, um, we, we've, we've garnered a, 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 an even greater sense of togetherness um, that, that, that's meant that people have really pulled together um, uh, with, with, with a sense of purpose and passion to, to, to ensure that we're, we're still delivering the same high level of support to the people that we support. I think you raised a really important point there, um, Teresa, in the sense that there will be some positive elements from our working practices that have come about during this time that could end up becoming a permanent fixture in the way that businesses and organisations ultimately operate in this country. For example, it's not clear that the conventional office environment will be back fully in vogue following the uh, the lockdown. It could well be the case that more and more people are working remotely on a personal basis because that just suits them more. Yeah, and we've, we've been watching, uh, we, we've been listening to people, but we've also been looking at the hard data in terms of our outcomes. Um, and we've been able to maintain the same high level of, of service provision through this period, even though everyone's been working in a very different way. So what we've, what we've the, the narrative uh, around the way that we work and the way that we, we're proposing uh, in taking this forward, we, you know, we have eight different offices. 
Um, and we have said to people, as, as services, if you come to us and there is consensus amongst the locality uh, offices and services for you to be more permanently, well, be permanently based at home, we will consider that. And we've got two services um, that are in that position and we've done all the necessary sort of risk assessments and taken all the comments on board. And I've actually um, agreed to permanently place those services as home-based services. So that's something we probably wouldn't have thought about six months ago. Um, and, and the assurances we've looked at are the things that you'd expect, but also one of the things I'm keen uh, that we maintain it now and into the future is a really healthy organisational culture. Um, and that's, you know, that's one thing that's been tested during COVID and, and, and you know, it's really stood us in good stead in, in terms of being able to, to continue to, to do well through those times. But if people do take on a more permanent um, home office approach, you know, it's, it's making sure we adapt and ensure that that doesn't erode or undermine uh, the, the, the healthy culture that we have at the moment. And, and you know, we, we need to do things differently to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has made us look at a number of things in different ways, um, and that um, and that's actually been very helpful. Um, so, you know, as I said, there's been some, some positives, and we've also uh, set up an in, internal innovation hub uh, where we have a group of staff who are looking at different things, different ways of doing things as a result of the way that we're working with a view to sort of embedding and, and taking it further and faster for us. So um, we, we've tried to make the best of the situation, um, as a lot of charities and other organisations have done uh, during these times, and um, as I said, come out stronger, fitter, uh, and continue to thrive in delivering um, and, and meeting our uh, strategic objectives in the longer term. And it sounds as if you've approach this incredibly selflessly providing all of the support that's been required for your staff and for safeguarding their sort of mental health and well-being but obviously when you are an employee in a business or an organization you do have those leaders in the hierarchical ladder to sort of look up to for that direction as and when it's needed but when you're the person sort of running the show at the top like yourself it can sometimes be a very, very lonely place, can't it, when you don't really have anybody to refer to in the same way. So when you do need that little bit of inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to look to to find that? Um, in, in a number of places. And I know often often you hear that the, you hear people say, you know, it's lonely at the top. And I, I, I'm very lucky and I don't, I don't feel that because I've got a fantastic senior management team. We're a very open, transparent, supportive team, challenging each other. I've got a, an extremely supportive board of trustees um, who uh, uh, also help guide, support, um, and, and pull in the same direction. But I, I'm also involved in a number of external chief exec networks from with chief execs from different sectors, and that's another forum in which I can share challenges, talk through and process issues uh, with with those individuals as well. So I feel from a personal perspective that I've got a number of, and of course the family and friends network as well on top of that. So, you know, depending on, you know, what I'm dealing with at any one time, I've, I've got various places that I can go to for support, um, not just now, but you know, any any point in time. So I, I, I do feel I do feel very uh, lucky in that respect. And thinking now about 
the fact that over the next few months we are going to have to adjust to a new normal way of doing things and living for the foreseeable future. What is next over the course of the next year for you and for Encompass, do you think, Teresa? And what do you really hope to achieve as an organisation as we begin to embrace those challenges? Ultimately, um, but for Encompass, our our aspirations, at least through to 2023, is that we want to um, grow our presence in the north of England and support as many people as we can. So by 2023, we're supporting 60,000, 70,000 people, not 30,000 people. Um, and how we do that, um, I, I believe, will be driven by what we've learned during recent months because I think the uh, the way that services are structured uh, and the way that services are commissioned moving forward are going to need to demonstrate that, that they have this, adapt- uh, they can adapt and they've got this agile um, element to them to deal with whatever's thrown at them, like pan- pandemics and, and, and anything else. Um, but from a, from a starting point of view, is continue to build on that, that, that healthy organisational structure um, and, and um, culture. So, you know, we're striving. Uh, one of our one of the outcomes we want to achieve is to be in the top five not for profits to work for in the UK by 2020, um, as 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 deemed by the Sunday Times Top 100 um, Award. So we're number 13 at the moment, um, but we want to be at number five. Um, and that's all about staff engagement and having extremely high levels of staff satisfaction and engagement. So I'm looking at it from two points of view in terms of how we adapt and how we maintain that culture moving forward. And I think if we get those two things right, the growth will come. Let's certainly hope there will be positive news to share in the coming months on that front, Teresa. And just because, of course, we're only at a point where we can just speculate on what the future might bring, I think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show in future just to see how things are getting on a few months down the line. Um, That would be wonderful. Yep, I'd be, be more than happy to do that. I think it would be fantastic uh, because it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And that doesn't just go for myself. It also goes for the listeners who are tuning in, who I'm sure have had a really insightful experience hearing your views. And most importantly, Teresa, until hopefully we do speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Because even though we are starting to see some green shoots, we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation as of yet. And, and, and likewise, and um, yeah, I, I think, you know, our message to, to our staff is, is that we're taking their health and well-being at the very heart of all the decisions that we're making and, and people need to stay safe and well. And that goes for you as well. I really do appreciate that, Teresa. And also for those tuning in today, do continue to be sensible with lockdown restrictions lifting. Look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking today to Teresa Jennings, the Chief Executive at Encompass. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City but most notably he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup following his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago now. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and that is of course coming up next.
We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team, when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, they the quite always mention when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life, and that's, that's quite purely the case. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved. 
and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict. But at a time, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. 
I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever. 
which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it's quite funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe another time then, but we... um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Islands, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh, if, you, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you were a young man when. See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is, people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work 
for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many... Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, 
Yes, the word, the, word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without? in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top, Managers and lead it, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm. I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's you completely focus, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, over the past and just uh, refresh my, my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.